Hello, my name is Kelly Kelly. Welcome to the NICU Now audio support series. I am a NICU parent to Jackson, a micro preemie born at 24 weeks, and Lauren, a late-term preemie born at 34 weeks. I am also the founder and executive director of Hand to Hold, a national nonprofit dedicated to providing education, resources, and peer-to-peer support to families that have experienced premature birth, the loss of a baby, or have a child with a special health care need. Hand to Hold's NICU Now audio support series was developed to help NICU parents navigate their NICU journey. Having a baby admitted to the NICU is traumatic, no matter how long the NICU stay. Being discharged from the hospital without your baby is emotionally devastating. Even late preterm and near-term babies face significant health challenges. Many still struggle with feeding issues, and parents may face tremendous medical expenses that are not covered by Medicaid or insurance. It's important to understand that even parents of late-term and near-term preemies are at risk of postpartum depression and anxiety disorders. Here to discuss the challenges late-term and near-term babies and their parents face are Sue Ludwig and Dr. Raylene Phillips. Sue is the president and founder of the National Association of Neonatal Therapists, where she uses a unique blend of clinical expertise, innovation, and leadership skills to support neonatal occupational therapists, physical therapists, and speech-language pathologists as they advance this specialized field on a global level. She is also the co-founder of Infant Driven Feeding and co-author of the Infant Driven Feeding Scales. Sue practiced as a neonatal occupational therapist at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center for more than 20 years. Dr. Raylene Phillips is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Loma Linda University Children's Hospital Division of Neonatology. After raising three children as a stay-at-home mom, she received a master's degree in developmental psychology, became NIDCAP certified as an infant developmental specialist, and then attended medical school at University of California, Davis, graduating in 2004. She completed her pediatric residency and neonatology fellowship at Loma Linda University Children's Hospital and is currently an attending neonatologist in the NICU at the same hospital as well as medical director of newborn nursery at Loma Linda University Medical Center, Marietta. Dr. Phillips is an international board-certified lactation consultant and is a fellow of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. I just want to thank you both so much for joining us today for our Hand to Hold podcast episode, talking specifically about our early term and late preterm babies. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Well, let's start with you, Dr. Phillips. If you could just tell me a little bit about the description and the differences between being an early term and a late preterm baby. All right. Let's start there. Um, Technically, as far as medical terminology is concerned, baby is considered to be full term at 37 weeks. However... 
the, we know that if they go to 39 or 40 weeks, which is actually their due date, 40, 40 weeks is their due date, that they actually have fewer uh, problems after they're born. So a designation of early term has been given to babies born at 37 or 38 weeks, and then more full term at 38, uh, 39 to 40 weeks, and then their late term at 41 or 42 weeks. So a, a late preterm baby, a baby who's actually preterm but not very, very, very preterm, a late preterm baby is uh, born at 34 and 0 sevenths weeks or up to 36 and 6 sevenths weeks. That's the definition of a late preterm baby. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate you helping uh, clarify that for me because I am a mom of a late preterm baby being at 34 weeks. So this episode is really uh, important to me and speaks to my heart because um, I'm also the mom of a 24-weeker, so I expected that baby uh, to have challenges and for us to have a long NICU stay. But I have to say when my baby was born at 34 weeks, and she looked very healthy. She was 5 pounds. She was 7 ounces. She did not require oxygen. Um, I was quite surprised with that she was facing some pretty um, pretty difficult challenges uh, in her NICU stay. And, you know, I was, at first they had told me they would bring her to my hospital room. She would be able to room in. She was looking great. And then things just did not progress for her, and she needed to stay in the NICU. So I want to help other parents understand why do their late preterm and even some early term babies need to stay in the NICU? So could we start there? Can you tell me a little bit about what are we looking for? What are we assessing in these first hours and days after delivery for these babies that fall into this category? Dr. Phillips? Well, first of all, it's important to um, to understand that they that all of their organ systems are still immature. They're all preterm. Um, they, they were expecting to continue developing for, the, for four more weeks, uh, technically, if they were born at 36 weeks, or at 34 weeks, they were expecting six more weeks of development before they faced the challenges of being outside the uterus and um, breathing, eating, keeping warm, that sort of thing on their own. So we know that their lungs are a little immature, and some babies more than others. We know that their um, their thermal regulation system is a little immature, and also they don't have so much body fat to help them keep warm. Their uh, glucose or sugar um, metabolism is a little bit immature still, so they can have low blood sugars. They can have feeding difficulties primarily because they may not have the strength or the endurance to do a full feeding or at least do the full feedings all day long. We know that their brains are still a little immature and the brain development is what actually um, establishes their, their coordination of suck, swallow, and breathing. So that plays out. So what we notice is that in the, the early transitional period, um, right after they're born, 
uh, more preterm, late preterm babies than, and even early term babies have problems with respiratory distress, not all of course, but some. They have more problems with apnea where they stop breathing or they, uh, their brain doesn't remind them to breathe. They have more problems with uh, low temperatures, low blood sugar, or feeding difficulties. And even in the first week afterwards, they may not have the endurance uh, for full feeding so they can get dehydrated. Um, they can have, their livers are a little more immature, so they can have higher levels of jaundice. And we know that their bilirubin levels, uh, which peak at about day four or five in full-term babies, and late preterm babies, they really peak a little bit later at day five or six. They can, their, their immune systems are more immature, so they could be at higher risk for infection. Uh, even in the later neonatal period, they have more hospital readmissions and more late onset sepsis. They have a higher risk of sudden infant death syndrome uh, and anemia, and even have higher rates of learning difficulties and school failure and behavior problems, which uh, are hardly often not attributed to their late preterm uh, birth, but they are. It was an interesting study um, that quantified the rates of morbidities or problems uh, of late preterm infants. It was done in Massachusetts, and what they found was that overall, term babies had about 3%, about 3% of babies had some problem that required some intervention or some NICU stay, whereas 22% of late preterm babies did. And when they broke it down to weeks, this is really interesting and it's really kind of easy to remember. For every week below 38 weeks that a baby is born, their risk of having some kind of a problem that might require an acute stay doubles. So if you go to 40 weeks, which is their due date, about 2.5% of babies might have an issue that might require some NICU care or some intervention. At 39 weeks, it's not much different, it's 2.6%. At 38 weeks, it goes up a little bit more. Now, these are our early term babies. It goes to 3.3%. But when you go down to 37 weeks, it's almost 6%. When you go down to 36 weeks, it's 12%. When you go down to 35 weeks, it's 25%, 25.6 actually. And when you go to 34 weeks, it's over 50% of babies that have problems. So every single week of gestation counts. And when babies are born preterm, we can just we have to be vigilant to be able to identify when there might be a problem um, that is nobody's fault. It's just the immaturity of the baby. Thank you so much. I feel like I'm learning, and it's been 16 years, but I'm learning more about my daughter's NICU stay and what all they were looking for and monitoring. Given that we are talking to NICU parents and some of these parents are new to the NICU, I wanted to go back and make sure that we're talking in layman's terms. So you mentioned thermoregulation. Can you talk to me a little bit about what is that? That's the baby's ability to stay warm and maintain a normal body temperature. And we know that um, one of the factors in staying warm is having enough fat. Um, and the brown fat is the type of fat that babies develop in the last month of gestation. And that's when they plump up. And uh, they, they're all these chubby little babies at full term. Late preterm babies don't have that, and that's where the um, energy to keep a baby warm comes from, is from those fat stores. 
So if a baby doesn't have them, then it takes a lot more energy to keep them warm, and sometimes they just don't have enough. So we might look at when these babies are in the NICU, they're going to be under the lights to keep them warm. Um, maybe or skin to skin. That's even skin better. Skin. I was going to say kangaroo care is, is very, very important for this population uh, in the NICU as well so that uh, they're, they're bonding with their moms and dads and partners and learning to regulate their temperature uh, being skin to skin. And even if they aren't in the NICU, it's very important for parents of preterm babies, mothers in particular, to keep their baby skin to skin much of the time. That might even help keep them out of the NICU. Fantastic. And then another word that you mentioned that some of our families may not be familiar with is sepsis. Can you talk to us a little bit about sepsis? Sepsis just means infection, so a systemic infection, infection of the bloodstream. And um, if the baby's immune system, the system that protects the babies from getting sick, is immature, they're at higher risk for catching an infection. And that's, the, that's all that sepsis means. One, one thing I wanted to mention in relationship to their, uh, their long-term development is that a baby's brain at 34 weeks is only two-thirds the weight it will be at term. So there's a lot of brain growth to occur in those last uh, six weeks uh, of pregnancy. So that can account for some of the d developmental issues that some babies will have. And it's not that they can't <clears throat> um, achieve as much in the long term, but they're going to need some extra help and maybe a little extra time. Well, I definitely want to come back and talk about that some more because, again, just from my own personal experience, that that happened for us and for my daughter. And, um, you know, we did not identify some of the challenges until much later, whereas with my son, he qualified for early intervention therapy, and so he was being um, monitored and tracked, and all those things were happening on a regular basis, but I didn't know to be looking for that for my late-term preemie, so I definitely want to come back to that. Okay. But I wanted to bring Sue into this discussion and talk some more about, because we talked about brain development and how that relates to feeding and uh, the babies being ready to suck, swallow, breathe, and uh, regulate that process in eating. So, Sue, can you talk to us? Uh, first of all, will you explain your role uh, and that of other therapists in the NICU? Because I think sometimes we don't understand why is a therapist uh, coming to uh, evaluate and then provide support for the baby and teach the family. So talk to me first a little bit about your background and what you're doing in the NICU and then if we could tackle that feeding issue. Sure. So uh, I'm a neonatal occupational therapist. Uh, other neonatal therapists could also be physical therapists or speech language pathologists. And so it's tempting, I think, for parents to assume that if we're showing up, you know, at the bedside of their baby that something is inherently wrong. But in the NICU, our role is almost entirely preventative, meaning that um, what we are looking for is at any gestational age that your baby is born, we're going to look, is, is your baby at that age uh, developmentally appropriate for that current age? So even if they're, at, you know, 23, 24, 25, um, born at those weeks, we would still look, are they appropriate for that age of development? And then what our role is, is to help bridge the gap developmentally from what your baby, ex their, your baby system expected to develop like inside the womb 
to what is actually happening in this environment of the NICU, which is quite different from, from what they were expecting, meaning things like instead of being uh, kind of curled up in a little nice ball uh, in the womb, they're, they're maybe out um, in, the, you know, in the incubator on the bed. Uh, they're not able to bring themselves into that little flex ball position yet, just developmentally. Um, their brain was in a, and their system was in this very predictable environment of the womb, meaning, uh, you know, no, no sounds or, well, there are some sounds, but no um, sharp sounds like there are in the NICU, uh, no bright lights, no pain and things like that. So all these different experiences developmentally that their baby system expected um, are, are now just different. And so as therapists, we want to help to try to manage the environment that your baby is developing in to make it more supportive of brain development for them and also to decrease pain and to help their, their muscles and their brains and everything develop as on track as possible in this environment that they weren't prepared for. Does that make sense, Kelly, to you? It, it does. And I, I think that you know, I so wish that I had more knowledge. I wish I had asked more questions. So I definitely want to recommend to our families that are listening that they ask those questions of their nurse, their neonatologist, their therapist, and learn as much as they can while they're in the NICU because that's just going to help them become more confident caregivers and teaching them to advocate for their babies earlier um, And because I find that I've had to be an advocate for both my 24-weeker as well as my 34-weeker uh, for many years after NICU discharge. So that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit about jaundice because um, I think or I, I, it is my understanding that they can be jaundiced because their livers aren't fully developed and, and ready to um, function fully. But also, you know, these feeding issues, I think, um, can perpetuate the problems with jaundice. Is, is that correct, Dr. Phillips? Yes, there's actually more than one mechanism for which um, they can have jaundice, like you mentioned. One is the immature liver that is responsible for metabolizing <clears throat> the substance in the blood called bilirubin that comes from our red blood cells that's normal and expected. All babies have a little bit of elevated bilirubin, um, but late preterm babies <clears throat> kind of have an exaggerated amount of or they can have an exaggerated amount of bilirubin, which causes the jaundice, which is what you see when their skin turns a little bit yellow. It's, bilirubin by itself is not dangerous. Um, it's actually a, a very potent antioxidant, which is good for babies in their first few days outside the womb when they're suddenly exposed to a lot more oxygen than they were inside the womb. But, of course, any good thing can go awry, and if it gets very, very elevated in the high 20s, then it can cause uh, permanent brain damage. So we pay close attention to bilirubin levels. The other thing that can cause uh, bilirubin to stay high is if the baby is not feeding well, because the main route of exit for bilirubin is through the stools, and if a baby's not eating, they're not stooling and therefore their bilirubin can stay in the body and stay in the bloodstream and kind of recycles and uh, the bilirubin can get higher and higher without some interventions such as phototherapy, which is just special lights that happen to be in the blue light spectrum that change the molecular structure of 
bilirubin in the bloodstream so that it can then be uh, leave the body through the, um, the kidneys and the urine as well as through the stool. So it's a, uh, sunlight does the same thing, but babies in the NICU are not exposed to sunlight, so we use artificial sunlight or phototherapy. So the, the feeding issue is something that can contribute to higher levels of bilirubin or jaundice in uh, late preterm babies. Well, I think that's so important because we're talking about these babies um, tend to go home pretty soon. You know, they don't stay in the NICU typically for very long. They're a couple of weeks, uh, depending on the gestational age at birth. And then we, as we take them home, we need to be aware and know how to monitor uh, how much they're eating and keeping a close eye on uh, kind of the color of their skin, and if there are other ways, are there any other things that we need to be looking for when we bring them home um, to know that they are feeding enough and that the jaundice level is uh, within a, a normal range? Dr. Phillips, are there some things? Well, I'll just, I'll just uh, address the jaundice level. It really should be resolved within the first week or two. I mean, a week, actually, week or week and a half. So you wouldn't probably need to worry about it at two weeks. It's more of a first week thing. Like I said, term babies, their peak bilirubin is about day four or five, and then it goes down naturally on its own, whereas late preterm babies peak at about day six or seven. So if the baby has gone home at day four or five, then they might need to be checked by their pediatrician to be sure that the bilirubin level is going down as appropriate, um, knowing that it will take a little bit longer. But it shouldn't be something that lasts for two weeks. It's okay. more the feeding issues that we need to worry about. And maybe Sue can talk a little bit more about how we can ensure that babies get off to a good start of feeding so that they can continue feeding while at home. Yes, Sue, will you add to that? Yes, absolutely. So for the late preterm uh, in the NICU, who's still in the NICU, uh, feeding can be a challenge because like Dr. Phillips was saying, all of, all of their systems are still immature, um, brain, lungs, et cetera, and that does affect their coordination of suck, swallow, and breathe, which a full-term baby does quite well and efficiently. But for a late preterm infant, uh, there's a transition sort of they may have a, a tube in their nose at first um, to begin getting some of their feedings through that tube to make sure they get enough nutrition. And there can also be breast or bottle feeding as well. But it takes a lot of energy for a late preterm infant to not only eat, but to do it enough times a day and to take in enough volumes during those times of day uh, without getting too fatigued to actually grow um, because they are using a lot of energy, you know, just to do all the things we already discussed. And so um, one thing, you know, I think parents can do is, is be involved as much as possible from day one um, with skin-to-skin -skin holding, with um, if they are going to breastfeed, you know, being there as much as possible so that there are opportunities uh, to do so. And also if they're bottle feeding, uh, we want the parents to become the expert feeder of their baby. And the more often that you're there, and the more often you are the one feeding your baby, the better you will get at kind of what we call reading their cues. And, and that, those are cues that, that your baby will give to, you know, indicate if they're hungry, you know, are they kind of rooting around, you know, are they showing, are they waking up around a feeding time? Some things that as they mature, they'll get better at. 
um, but we want to help support those those cues and and as a parent teach you how to read them so that you know when your baby's ready to eat you know what they what they how they behave when they're kind of either full or tired um, as a late preterm they could just be tired and not able to take it all and and how that is going to progress so that when you are what we what we want is just that they eat in a quality way meaning they're safe this is fun for them they're taking in their nutrition and they're growing and then as they mature if we're supporting all of those things, and then they will take more and more of that volume, uh, more calories in that they need to take. Uh, with and as they mature, will they'll get less tired doing so, and also become more efficient at it. So as their brain develops, as they get more and more muscle tone, which happens as they get closer to that term age, they will become a more efficient eater when they're well supported like that. And then at home, I think if we teach you that well in the NICU, then you have the skills that once you take your baby home, you will notice, you know, are they, if they're not waking up, you know, for feedings or if that quality of their feeding changes or, or declines, you would be much more likely to notice that because of, of all the time that you've spent with them working on feeding in the NICU. So our whole job is to really make sure you are confident and competent and in reading your own baby's cues for feeding. Thank you so much. That's very valuable. And I, I would like to add something about uh, the breastfeeding mom and breastfeeding a late preterm baby. Um, we know that late preterm babies can actually be deceptively vigorous, but quite ineffective. Um, so for that reason, because they don't usually have the same strength as a full-term baby or the stamina of a full-term baby, what can happen is that they can look like they're vigorously sucking, but they're really not transferring milk. And that does two things. One is it doesn't give the baby the nutrition that they need or the, or the volume of fluid that they need to stay hydrated, but it also doesn't stimulate mom's breast as adequately as it needs to, and it doesn't empty her breast so that she continues to build her milk supply. So then her milk supply begins to falter and, and decrease, and then it's a vicious cycle. So what we like to recommend is that a mother of a late preterm baby, even if she's not in the NICU, she begins to pump right away. And she pumps after every feeding of the baby. And of course, in the NICU, we'll be evaluating that feeding and maybe giving some supplement to begin with. But mothers should continue to pump after each feeding to make sure that her breasts are empty, to make sure that she has adequate stimulation and can build a good milk supply. Um, we had a mom in the NICU um, in one of the hospitals where I worked that the baby wasn't, actually the baby wasn't in the NICU. The baby was on the floor with the mother, and she wasn't quite, she, she wasn't quite convinced that this was an issue. So she didn't pump, and the baby looked like she was feeding well for the first two days, but her weight loss was excessive, and uh, she wasn't giving, had, didn't have enough urine output. And so we did weigh her before and after a feed at the end of the second day when there should have been some milk transfer, and she wasn't transferring more than a few milliliters. So then mom was convinced and she began to pump and she was able to build up her milk supply and we, had to, we supplemented the baby with a supplemental nursing system at the breast so that she could continue breastfeeding experience while getting nutrition and were able to save that 
breastfeeding relationship, that breastfeeding relationship, and still provide the baby with the, uh, the nutrients and the fluid that the baby needed. But that's something to really keep in mind that breastfeeding mothers need extra support as well, not just the baby, but the mothers to um, provide a pump for them and teach them how to hand express and, and educate them about the importance of, of paying attention to their own milk supply. Those are all great points, Dr. Phillips, and actually something that I did want to cover today because that really was one of the more challenging things for me, um, my baby being in the NICU. Uh, again, I was pumping and pumping a great deal, and uh, we were putting the baby to the breast to give her that opportunity and that bonding experience um, and that learning experience, but I was also bottle feeding. So the whole feeding process took a very long time, and it was something that even when the baby came home, home, I required some support from my husband and my mother uh, as this, you know, being able to put the baby to the breast, pump, and to feed her a bottle, and then you turn around and it's time to do it all over again. So I just do want to acknowledge uh, how hard this is for NICU moms, uh, be it a micro preemie or an early term or a late preterm, when we are pumping and feeding our babies. And I know it can cause quite a bit of anxiety uh, for the mom to know, is the baby getting enough milk and is my milk supply going to stay up? So really encouraging them uh, continue pumping and uh, talking closely to your uh, lactation consultant and getting the support you need there and then once you go home if you feel like you still need support uh, talking to your pediatrician but also maybe seeking some lactation consultant at home I did have someone who visited us at home uh, to make sure that everything was going as best it could so it did take her quite some time to learn to breastfeed fully and to know that she was getting all the nutrition that she needed but I want to go back and just talk about how difficult this is, uh, no matter how early your baby is. When you are separated from your baby and there are concerns about their health and development, um, it can be very stressful for parents. So even though my daughter had a very short NICU stay, she was there for a week, I still had to go home without my baby. I was discharged from the hospital, and I did not get to take my baby home. And I think that is devastating for any parent. And I just want to acknowledge how difficult that is. And um, I, th I think sometimes we downplay. We hear our parents downplay, oh, my, my baby was only in the NICU for a week or a few days. But acknowledging that, you know, there there is anxiety when we are separated from our baby, and there is anxiety when we have to be discharged and we're not there with them. And the ongoing challenges of uh, pumping and uh, feeding our babies can, can be quite taxing. So I just wanted the parents to know that this is hard, and you may need to seek out support and to not feel badly about that or guilty about that uh, and getting uh, support from a peer mentor and talking to your OB about your mental health because uh, our NICU moms are at a higher risk for postpartum depression. And so that can be any NICU mom. It's not just moms who are there for a very long period of time. So I want our uh, late-term and early-term moms to, to know their risk factors for postpartum depression and anxiety disorders. And if you're continuing to feel the 
feel stressed or anxiety around caring for your baby, if you do not feel like you are uh, capable of handling the day-to-day challenges of being a new mom, to reach out for support, to talk to your pediatrician, talk to your OB, and talk to potentially a counselor or a peer mentor about your feelings. Is there anything that either of you would like to add uh, to the emotional stress factor of having a baby in the NICU? I would like to, to add that this is absolutely biologically primed. Uh, nature has equipped mothers with biological activators um, to, to prompt them to be with their babies for survival of their babies. So it's a very chemical, bio, biological, um, neurotransmitter-driven instinct to be with your baby and protect your baby and be skin to skin and be very close to your baby. And when that's not possible, the body is, naturally goes into a very stressed uh, system. Nature wants you to be stressed when you're separated from your baby so that you will make every effort to be there in order to protect your baby for survival. So this is all instinctual and biochemical. However, it's not fun to live with, and sometimes situations are in play like when babies need to be in the NICU where for their own safety and their own um, medical support, they need to be there, and our NICUs, unfortunately, many of them were not designed to support parents in being with their babies. Fortunately, that is changing. There's definitely a strong trend toward building NICUs where parents can be there um, 24-7 if if they're able uh, in single-family rooms. And that's the way nature meant for babies and mothers to be. But if that isn't possible for you, then just know that you're act- it's very normal for you to feel anxious and stressed. And yet, um, just knowing it's normal it doesn't always help. And it, there are resources available to, uh, to provide some coping mechanisms for that inevitable stress and anxiety and even depression that mothers will feel and even fathers if they're unable to be with their babies like nature had designed you to be. One of the support, one of the, the resources, and I know that Helping Hand has lots of resources for parents, but one of them is supportfornicuparents.org. And there's lots of resources on that website for parents and also for professionals on how to better provide support for families when their babies are in the NICU and when they sometimes need to be separated. Thank you for that additional information. Sue, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, just a a couple things. I mean, I I think that, you know, that each person's definition of how, of trauma is unique to them. And that, like you were saying, Kelly, that to say, well, my babies, you know, I, how can I be worried when there's this baby over here that, you know, weighs one pound and my baby's this old, et cetera. And, but just recognizing to any parents listening that that kind of comparative suffering is, uh, you know, usually leads to you feeling shame and guilt and things that that may not be healthy for you. And so that realizing that you don't ha- there's no measuring stick for when you when you feel trauma. You know, it like like Kelly said, having the late preterm infant and just the separation alone uh, is is reason enough. And so you know, letting go, trying to let go of, well, at least I'm not here, um, you know, that you're allowed to feel feel that grief and loss for what oh, you are yeah, experiencing. It's normal. And, and that's, 
you know, something that you can expect. And also when you're in that sometimes that place of, of grief, you might have people, especially with a late preterm infant in your family or friends that are saying, oh, but your baby looks so healthy and at least he won't stay in the NICU long and all these types of things that they might be saying. And sometimes you may not be able to sort of keep up with counseling all the people around you um, with information like we're talking about today. So it's also great to just say, you know what, here's a resource like a podcast like this that you can even give to friends and family to say, you know, here's some of the things that are normal for what I'm experiencing. And you don't have to take on the task of educating everyone around you about how you might feel. So um, just using this kind of resource, not only for yourself, but for other people in your life that, that might, it might be helpful for them to hear this from an objective place and uh, might make you feel less alone uh, in sharing that information. So. Thank you so much. I think that's very Great idea, valuable. Sue. Right. Um, at Handhold, we always encourage our, our uh, late-term preemie uh, families to attend our support group. Sometimes they don't feel like they would fit in because, you know, the parents of the micro preemies, the parents who have been there for a long time, and we just really think it's important for them to acknowledge how hard this is uh, for your baby to be in the NICU for two days, two weeks, two months. It's just a very difficult uh, journey and uh, to Dr. Phillips' point, it is just not biologically the way that we are wired. And so we want to acknowledge all of those things for them. So let's switch gears for just a moment. I want to talk about some of the things that we need to be aware of when our babies go home. Uh, one of the things that we have made note of here is that our late-term preemies are, um, I don't know about early-term, but the late preterm babies tend to be hospitalized more for RSV. So I wonder if that's because we don't do enough to educate the parents while they're in the NICU about RSV and or it's that they are not really understanding fully the immaturity of their immune systems and they're taking them maybe to the grocery store or to play dates, allowing more people to come and visit, um, and just not taking as much precaution because they weren't in the NICU very long or they did not appear to be unhealthy. So Dr. Phillips, any First of all, would you describe RSV and help parents understand from a late term, late preterm and early term, should they be concerned about RSV after taking their baby home from the NICU? Well, first of all, RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus, which is a common cold virus that almost everybody gets at some point in their life. And if you're an older child or an adult, it doesn't really affect you except for the symptomatic cold systems. <clears throat> but it doesn't compromise your ability to breathe. However, if you are a preterm baby and you, are, uh, and you have immature lungs, it can seriously compromise your ability to breathe and require, often require hospitalization or even intubation, uh, needing a breathing tube to help you breathe with mechanical ventilation. So um, somebody has jokingly said that RSV stands for a really serious virus for preterm babies, and uh, it can be very true. So I think that the, the important thing for parents of late preterm infants is to know that although babies younger than 35 weeks are at the highest risk, 
uh, and younger than 29 weeks, of course, the younger the baby, the more risks that they have because their lungs were not immature at birth, and so it takes a little bit of time for them to catch up. Um, and they need to take extra precautions. It's not just the lungs, but the immune system, and probably primarily the immune system um, because the, it's immune, the weak immune system that lets them become symptomatic or lets the virus take hold, but because of the immature lungs, it affects the lungs more than it ordinarily would. So I, I do think that parents of late preterm babies need to be aware that they need to provide extra protection in two ways. One is they need to keep their babies out of crowds during the winter time, the winter months. Uh, from um, <clears throat> November through April, they need to keep their babies out of crowds. And then secondly, hand washing. Um, uh, this respiratory syncytial virus can be caught, spread through the air through coughing, but also just on the, on the hands. So anybody who coughed into their hands or, or touched something that somebody coughed on and then handled their baby um, could be passing the, RS, the, the virus, RSV virus. Thank you so much for that. I just think it's so important um, that parents be educated about RSV because I do think it is a very serious virus. And, um, you know, when your baby is having to be rehospitalized, um, it, it can be very traumatic um, for the family. And, of course, um, we would be very concerned for the baby um, having to be rehospitalized because of that virus. If the baby is less than 35 weeks, um, it, it should qualify for a uh, medication, kind of, it's not a vaccine, but it's a medication that reduces the risk of getting RSV, and parents should advocate for their babies getting that. Now, the babies that are 36 weeks and above, or 30, they, they don't qualify for it because it hasn't been shown to make as much difference for them, but less than 35 weeks, they definitely should advocate for them getting that medication. Thank you for that. I, I believe that it's been quite confusing, I have to say, Dr. Phillips, of which babies qualify and which do not. Um, and there have been different guidelines that have been published and different insurance companies uh, handling it differently. So just I think it's a great point to talk to your pediatrician. Uh, well, first talk to your, your neonatologist before you're discharged about uh, any vaccines and uh, other uh, medications or preventions that your baby needs. We want to know that before we're discharged, but then being uh, educated by your pediatrician, asking those questions, and then advocating for your baby. Sometimes we really have to advocate with our insurance companies uh, to get things approved, and we just the, want to... The National that. Perinatal Association developed peer-reviewed guidelines that have been um, endorsed by multiple organizations that, um, that follow the most closely, follow most closely the FDA guidelines that are on the package insert of the medication that is used for this. So I would encourage parents to advocate for the use of the National Perinatal Association guidelines and look at them closely and take them to their pediatrician. Absolutely, and we will put a link to that resource on the podcast page for this episode so parents can go there and, and familiarize themselves with those guidelines. So lastly, I would like to talk about ongoing development after the NICU. As I mentioned, um, my son qualified for early childhood intervention. He was being monitored uh, for meeting his milestones, and he was covered for different kinds of occupational speech and physical therapies because of his early birth. 
My daughter, on the other hand, at 34 weeks, did not um, have the same path. We did not have the same recommendations for uh, therapy and prevention services. So, Sue, could you talk to me a little bit about the need for early intervention and potentially just evaluation of our babies uh, after the NICU? How soon would we be wanting to monitor our, their, their developmental milestones, and then what would we be looking for uh, as our babies get older? And so as far as how soon to follow up, I mean, I would – I would start the process as soon as possible, meaning while they're still in the NICU, asking the therapists who are involved in their care or um, other resources, discharge coordinators sometimes in the NICU, uh, what services are available because they are they can be very state dependent and regional uh, dependent, insurance dependent, and all of those things. And so asking sooner than later, hey, what are my options for having my child, you know, my baby evaluated developmentally after the NICU is just a great question to ask while you're still there so that you, if in fact there are services available, whether it's early intervention, you know, outpatient therapy, if in fact it's not RSV season, um, or anyone that privately could come into your home or all these different options, they can um, search those for you before you leave the hospital, which is one one huge step easier than trying to navigate that on your own once you leave. Uh, so I would start there. And then if, in fact, you're already, you know, out of the hospital, um, really asking your pediatrician what are the what are those same resources available to you in your area and and then going you know through the process of of just getting approval or setting that up. But as far as the the uh, timeliness of it, uh, it's not something I would worry about, you know, day one when you get home. But I would say with, with, within a few, you know, within a month or so of, um, of getting home, because especially if there are issues that are related to feeding or related to other developmental things that, you know, your baby's developing all the time. And so, for example, if, if they were, you know, had a little bit, say, weaker, like flexor tone, which is, is that, that tone that brings their arms and legs kind of in toward their body. Those are things that, as a parent, you could be working on very naturally within the everyday activities with your baby by, you know, having them with tummy time when they're awake and, and doing different activities. So, so again, um, there, there is a huge problem in the country, really, of delayed acquisition, delayed um, access to early intervention, meaning it can take months to get set up after discharge, which sort of defeats the purpose of, of really staying on top of those milestones. So uh, the sooner the better, uh, but I, I wouldn't want a parent to feel like it's something 911 to do at, immediately at discharge. So I would say trying to um, look within the first month after discharge of setting those services up. Um, so ask sooner because the process might take a minute. I would like to add that one of the most important things for late preterm parents of late preterm babies is, is just to be aware that they're at higher risk. Because just because you're at higher risk doesn't mean you're necessarily going to have a problem. For example, right. most people don't realize that um, late preterm babies even have a higher risk of cerebral palsy, but it's not a huge mm -hmm. risk. For example, two out of a thousand babies that are full term develop cerebral palsy. 7.3 out of 1,000 babies of late preterm babies can develop cerebral palsy in this one study. So although 7.3 out of 1,000 or 7 out of 1,000 is not a big number, 
Out of all the late preterm babies born, only seven out of a thousand developed cerebral palsy. But that was three times as high as the full-term babies. So it's just not to worry about it, but to be aware. So that if you see signs of abnormal tone, you can bring it to the attention of the pediatrician right away and get an intervention soon. Cerebral palsy is not something you're going to notice on day one. In fact, it's going to be something that you're not going to see until four or eight months uh, before the very first signs of cerebral palsy actually show up because of the brain development. Same same with learning and speech, um, that sort of thing, like school development. You just be aware that if, you're, if your child seems to be struggling with fine motor skills or be struggling with, with learning uh, compared to the peers, then just know that they're about 25 to 50% at higher risk for having some uh, delays in development and get them interventions quickly. Um, so it's just a matter of being aware, knowing that there's a slightly higher chance doesn't mean it's going to happen. They might just be perfectly fine, but there's a higher probability, and therefore you, when you see those signs, you will know to get help quickly and, and um, not delay. I was just going to add to that, you know, trusting your gut as the, as the parent sooner than later. Um, when you, if and when you do see anything that is worrisome to you developmentally, and also that you can, you know, ask for or advocate for an assessment by a therapist early on and and set a just a baseline of your baby's development so that if in fact uh, there is something that is could be noticed initially um, or if you come back you know six months from then that you you had something as a baseline to compare it to so what it what was typical here um, as something to compare uh, your baby to later Uh, and also that sometimes just in that one assessment a therapist can tell you a lot of things to do just to support your baby's normal development that you just may or may not know to do as a new parent or a parent of a late preterm infant. That again, there could be nothing inherently wrong, but it would give them opportunities um, to through play and through regular kinds of interventions that would just support that normal development. And I would also like to say that some of these um, issues don't even show up until school age, or at least they aren't noticed until school age. Um, Like Sue says, that if you're a student and you're getting some uh, early evaluation, it might be noticed earlier. But this is probably not the baby that you would want to, let's say their birthday is in September or October and the cutoff for starting first grade or kindergarten is in, you know, the first of November or the end of October, you wouldn't want to rush them uh, probably into an early entry into school because many of them um, are not quite ready for school at the same age that their, uh, if they, the term babies would be, and then they struggle more. And to have them, uh, let them have more chance at success, um, if they're right on the edge of that um, dis, uh, age for the decision whether to start or not, it might be better to give them another year. But that's something, a, a decision you wouldn't make on your own. You would have a professional evaluate your baby in many ways to, um, to help you make that decision. Just something to keep in mind about starting school. The, uh, the other issue that has come up is behavioral problems. And I always find it interesting that in research studies, they talk about, they refer to behavioral problems as minor sequelae of, 
of uh, being born premature, but I, I would state that they are minor only in the eyes of the researcher, not in the eyes of the parent who's living with them. And it sounds, uh, according to the studies, about 20% of late preterm infants had significant behavioral problems that persisted to eight years of age. So that's another area in which you'd want to get some professional help. If a baby's having behavioral problems, it's likely because they're having challenges in, in navigating life. And um, some early support, like Sue's been talking about, is would really help not only their their, um, the areas in which they're having difficulty, but would also probably translate into helping with their behavioral problems. That's excellent information. Thank you so much to both of you. And I, and I would concur. Um, you know, my daughter's uh, challenges really were not apparent until we were in preschool. And then uh, the teacher was evaluating her and able to talk to me about some of the delays that she was seeing in her speech and her fine motor. And um, so then, you know, we were able to get some early intervention and, uh, you know, just having to really concentrate on those things in first, second, third grade and get some accommodations, which I would have never expected uh, that we would have needed that for a baby born at 34 weeks who weighed five pounds and seven ounces, who did not require respiratory support. We were just delayed in some of our feeding, had some jaundice, some, some very minor things at birth but they did lead to some developmental challenges, some learning delays uh, later on. And she was diagnosed with ADD, which it is my understanding that some of our children do have a higher risk for some of those ADD, ADHD uh, diagnosis. So it's not to scare any of our families today as they sit in the NICU with their brand new babies. We don't want you worrying about these long-term complications. We just want to make you aware of them so that you can evaluate and get the support that you need for your baby as early as possible so that uh, you're able to circumvent some of the potential challenges that might be related to their early birth. Well, ladies, I just want to thank you so much for giving your time today to talk to us about uh, early term and late preterm babies who are in the NICU. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we end our discussion today? I think the, just the main th uh, take-home message for me and what I try to teach the um, medical students and residents and fellows um, that I'm working with and even parents is that late preterm babies are not just tiny little term babies. They look that way and they're sometimes extra cute because they're so tiny and petite, but they're really premature. They're really immature. and. We just need to give to to acknowledge that and give them the extra support they need, which is temporary. Hopefully, um, most of the extra support we give them is temporary. Some of it may be a little long term, but not to be fooled by the fact that they look so normal. On the outside, they look like every other baby, but on the inside, all their organ systems are significantly immature. We just need to have patience and give them the support they need until they uh, develop the way that they were meant to. And I would just add, you know, sorry, to, uh, to the parents is just one day at a time, and that community helps a lot, and you're not alone in this. Absolutely. 
Thank you so much for that. I agree, and that is definitely our tagline. We, we tell all of our hand-to-hold families that they are not alone. They are part of a community. That's what I wish for so much back when my children were in the NICU and why I founded this organization so that parents would not feel alone. So thank you again for not only being on the podcast, but what you do every single day to help NICU babies and their families. We appreciate you both so much. Thank Thanks, you. Kelly. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for making the time. In order for NICU babies to thrive after discharge, they need smart, informed parents who understand their needs and are emotionally and physically capable of caring for a medically fragile child. Peer-to-peer support is an effective tool for helping parents navigate their NICU stay. Support from a caring and informed NICU graduate parent helps a new family feel more capable, confident, and ready to face the journey ahead. To request support, volunteer, or donate, please visit our website at handtohold.org.